teach us about prayer. But more than that, what Jesus teaches us about the Father. Matthew chapter 6 at verse 5. Hear the word of God. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The entrance of God's word gives light, the psalmist says. And so let us, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, walk in the light as he is in the light today. Amen? Please be seated. So, last week, Vacation Bible School, number one, you may not have known you came to Vacation Bible School this week, but you have, you're in week number two. It may have been a long time since you have been to Vacation Bible School. Some of you, it's been a century since you were in Vacation Bible School, but better late than never, right? All right, so Vacation Bible School, what were your memories? Oh, you always got a craft. Always had to have a missions report. Always had to pass uh, the plate for an offering. I don't have an arts and crafts thing here today. I'm unprepared in that regard, but, but we'll have a lesson, all right? Again, last week, Psalm 23, passages that every child of God should know about following, following our good shepherd today, about talking to our heavenly Father, praying. When astronauts blast off from Cape Canaveral, Canaveral and are sent out there, out of Earth's orbit, uh, into the solar system, they're in constant contact with home base, with mission control, constant. And if you've watched a movie like Apollo 13 or something like that, you, you see how critical and how essential that is. That's just what prayer is. We shouldn't launch into any given day without being in intimate contact with mission control. And that's the throne room of heaven. Well, what I want to do today uh, is, is talk about the Lord's Prayer a little bit. There's so much here, really a lot more than just one sermon can, sermon can, can adequately address. 
But as I mentioned, just going back over this, and people, I've been studying this for a long time. I should know a lot more than I do, but I'm just grateful that a little over 30 years ago, I, I learned the catechism, one of the old catechisms, and it takes every phrase of the Lord's Prayer and asks, what, what are the, what's this petition? What does it mean? And just memorizing those answers. And that you'll hear a little of that old Westminster Shorter Catechism today coming out because it's, it's in my blood, and I'm so thankful. That closing section uh, of that little catechism dealt with the Lord's Prayer and explained it verse by verse, and that's what I want to do. But there was something new to me this time, too, coming back and reflecting on this for a week. And that is this, the sense, the growing sense in my heart, that this isn't just about taking our prayer life up a notch. Do you need that? <laughs> Who here doesn't need his or her prayer life, wouldn't like to... But there's something more fundamental, and I believe what Jesus is teaching us is that very thing, and that is our conception of the Father. And as that grows, then prayers like a no-brainer. That's going to be more as natural as breathing the more we have the vision of who our Father really is before us. You see, that's why following the shepherd, David could say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want because he had such a view of his shepherd that he didn't have to worry about anything. And he walked in the confidence of that. And so I think it the key to our life of prayer is understanding more what Jesus reveals about the Father. Reading the David McCullough's uh, biography of John Adams now and 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 again, in God's timing, John, just with this being Father's Day, how the Spirit works all these things together. But I remembered what John Adams, he was the second president of the United States, remember, Washington, then Adams, 1797 to 1801. He was the leader of the Continental Congress there in Independence Hall in Philadelphia. After the Revolutionary War began, he was dispatched as a diplomat to France, and he served there for years. There was a period where he and his wife, Abigail, and that storied romance and their letters back and forth, hundreds and hundreds of letters, they were four years separated, willing to make that sacrifice for the sake of this new country that was forming. And so it's a tremendous story. But anyway, in, early in this biography, David McCullough talks about the role of John Adams' father in his life. He writes, there were scarcely words to express the depth of his gratitude for the kindness his father had shown him, the admiration he felt for his father's integrity. His father was, quote, the honestest man, unquote, John Adams ever knew. Quote, in wisdom, piety, benevolence, and charity, in proportion to his education and sphere of life, I have never known his superior, unquote. Adams would write long afterward, by which time he had come to know the most prominent men of the age on two sides of the Atlantic. His father was his idol. It was his father's honesty, his father's independent spirit, and love of country, Adams said, that were his lifelong inspiration. After his father's death, years later, John Adams wrote, his own father's obituary. The testator had a good education, though not at college, and was a very capable and useful man. 
In his early life, he was an officer of the militia, afterwards a deacon of the church, and a selectman of the town, almost all business of the town being managed by him in that department for 20 years together, a man of strict piety and great integrity, much esteemed and beloved wherever he was known, which was not far, his sphere of life being not extensive. Well, yet in another way, I think we agree the sphere of his life, what he poured into his son, John, was very extensive. I'm only learning in part what degree it was that John Adams, this man of faith, amazing gifts, how our country was blessed and impacted positively by that. And a little other note about American history, this father, John Adams, poured into his son, John Quincy Adams, his life, and his son became the sixth president. John Quincy Adams of the United States of America. So I would think that John Adams' sphere of influence was bigger than his son ever really realized, right? And yet, even this father of Deacon John, John Adams' father, the more godly, the more a reflection of our Heavenly Father. And I really believe, dear friends, as the shepherd psalm teaches about the shepherd, the Lord's Prayer teaches us about our Heavenly Father. And that's what I want to emphasize today. There's a preface to the Lord's Prayer. This is the structure I learned. There's a preface. There are six petitions, and then there's a conclusion to the Lord's Prayer. Or you could look at it this way. Someone's noted there are ten sentences or ten clauses, some independent clauses, full sentence, some independent or dependent clauses, incomplete sentences. But regardless, there's a beautiful structure here. And there's nothing wrong with learning the Lord's Prayer and saying it by memory. And we do that here, don't we? But we want to be careful because this is in the context of Jesus teaching, giving exhortations against hypocrisy. Because that was so in vogue at the time, whether it came to how people gave their charitable uh, Gifts, the Pharisees would stand on the corner, blow the trumpet. They sought to show off in prayer. And then in regards to fasting was the same thing. So here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus attacks hypocrisy in this sixth chapter. Hypocrisy, idolatry, and worry. All these things. But at this point, uh, Jesus especially wants us to beware of vain repetitions, thoughtless praying. He wants us in a, in a closet where we have intimate fellowship with our Heavenly Father who sees in secret, who knows what we need before we ask and promises to reward us openly. And so to say this prayer as a congregation, as a people, by the way, ones have long noted, there's no I or me in this prayer. It is all we and our. And so we pray with and we pray for one another. But Jesus is giving us a model. He's teaching us a structure of prayer here. So beyond just teaching or saying this by memory, Jesus is giving us the means or the way to approach God, our Father which art in heaven. And then he's teaching us to give glory to God as he mentions the Father's name and kingdom and will. And then in the second half of the prayer, Jesus teaches us how to pray for our personal needs, our bread, our sins, our needs for protection in regards to temptation and the wiles of the devil. 
and then there's a conclusion. So I think you get a flavor. This is a model prayer, and you will never, you will never lack for what to pray when you think of the structure of the Lord's Prayer. You will never lack. There are always things that the Spirit will bring to mind that you can pray for. And you can make a whole prayer just on, for example, thy kingdom come. You ever thought of that? That is a missionary prayer. We'll talk about it just in a little bit, but that how suitable that is. All right, so just a couple notes, a couple points about each as we walk through here. Uh, but let us learn what Jesus would teach us about our Father. The preface, our Father which art in heaven. So when we come to pray, we speak directly to our heavenly Father, not to idols. All of the other gods of the nations, the Bible says, are idols. But Jehovah, the true and the living God, He is the Creator. He is our Creator. So we don't pray to idols. The Bible doesn't say to teach, pray to saints. We don't pray to angels. We pray to our Father. We don't say, and may the force be with you. He's not an impersonal force. He's the force of all forces. He's omnipotent, infinite, eternal, unchangeable God. And His being, His wisdom, His power, His holiness, His justice, His goodness and truth. But He is not impersonal. He is most personal. Someone else wrote that Father is the Christian name for God. Father is the Christian name for God. And I remember in in the course of many trips down to Haiti in the years, probably one of the most significant moments ever was when a dear Haitian pastor, Jean-Jacob Paul, served the Lord's Supper one Sunday morning in his sanctuary. And as he uh, read the words of institution and, and described what we were going to take place, he turned to pray. And when Jean addressed God in prayer, he said, Papa, And that, that did something in my heart. I think that kind of broke through a wall of formality and, and an academic <laughs> approach to prayer. Uh, and I will always be indebted because that's the spirit Jesus wants. The Holy Spirit, when the Spirit bears witness with our spirit, when we're in prayer, we pray, Abba, Father. And that's the Aramaic word for Daddy or Papa. That familiar that intimate. He's our Father who is in heaven. Jesus reminds us that He's transcendent. He has to humble Himself to behold the things that are in heaven and earth. Interesting, in a lot of languages, the word heavens is the word for, you know, the, the, uh, the expanse, the firmament, the atmosphere, and beyond that where the stars and the galaxies are hung. But it's also that dwelling place of God, in the immediate presence of God where we will be one day, seeing Him face to face. From there, He has to humble Himself to behold the things that are in heaven and earth. It emphasizes His exaltation, His eternity, His sovereignty, His greatness, His awesomeness. Our Father, who art in heaven. Well, then Jesus teaches us three things about our Father's glory. The first petition, then, is hallowed be thy name. I like it in Spanish. Padre nuestro que estás en los cielos, santificado sea tu nombre. May your name be sanctified. Santificado sea tu nombre. This is something so holy. 
so pure, so transcendent, so set apart. No wonder the third commandment that Moses received was what? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Don't treat it as something commonplace. Oh, I just detest in our day how in vogue it is to say OMG. How thoughtlessly. Don't let those words come out of your mouth lest you're in prayer crying out to God. Hallowed, where's that come from? What's that about? Well, I thought about how Lincoln, President Lincoln, at Gettysburg, used that word in that famous address. Fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now, we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who gave their lives, that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hollow this ground, hollow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. Well, Lincoln goes on, but I thought, isn't that true? Hallowed be thy name. We can't add anything to the name of God. We're not even worthy to take his name upon our lips. We can't consecrate it. We can't hollow it in a sense. But there's one who's come before us who did. Because of the life that he gave, the life that he lived and the sacrifice our Lord Jesus Christ gave of his body. He hallowed that name. And that should give us a sense of how sacred it is. What is his name? His name is everything by which he has made himself known. The Hebrew concept of your name is everything about you. It's the revelation of his glory, his works, his attributes, everything about God. Hallowed be his name. May his name be glorified. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Paul wrote the Corinthians, do all what? To the glory of God. What an awesome way for the prayer to begin. It seems like anything else would be inappropriate, wouldn't it? Jesus starts at the very pinnacle of what we should think and how we should communicate. Hallowed be your name. Don't you have a sense that we ought to take our shoes off because we're on hallowed ground when we pray? The second petition is thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom. It's his spiritual kingdom. It's his reign and rule. By divine right, all of creation is his kingdom. But there was a usurper of the glory of God. And Satan, who would 
be God in the place of God, fell and dragged a third of the heavenly host down with him in his fall. And he tempted our parents in the Garden of Eden. And so death came into the world because sin entered into the world and the kingdoms of men would rise and fall one after another. And years later, God would give a great vision to the prophet Daniel. And Daniel had a vision and, and, and God revealed to him and Daniel recording that prophesied of the succession of those great kingdoms of Babylon and Medo-Persia and Rome and Greece. But then there would come, or Greece and then Rome, there would come Another kingdom would destroy all of the others and be an eternal kingdom. And it was the what kingdom? The kingdom of God. Daniel prophesied of it. And Jesus, when he came and entered into his earthly ministry, began preaching that. The time is fulfilled, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the kingdom is ushered in with the king. But you say, but what sense does it make then to pray thy kingdom come? Well, the old catechism, I think, put it beautifully. What do we pray for in these words? We pray that the kingdom of Satan may be destroyed. Reminds us of the spiritual warfare we're in, isn't it? But in those lands, in that 1040 window, in the place where those billions of people are given to the idolatry and the lies of the evil one, regardless of, of what religion made from man who's reigning there whose turf is that it's darkness it's the kingdom of the evil one but when we pray thy kingdom come we're praying that that kingdom would be destroyed by virtue of light overcoming darkness and life overcoming death and the truth overcoming the lies of the evil one amen you see why it's a missionary prayer we pray that the kingdom of Satan would be destroyed and that the kingdom of God's grace would be increased. People coming into it and like us and, and being kept in the kingdom of grace. It's the expanse of the gospel. Jesus said the end would not come until disciples have been made of all nations. Then the end will come. And that's why the Great Commission is so relevant to us here today and why we need prayer for our brother and sister in the family like this. Pray for them earnestly. Thy kingdom come. But there's another mention. You see, because the kingdom of God, a great little hermeneutical or interpretive principle is to understand it's already, but it's not yet. The kingdom has not come in its fullness. And so the Lord has taught us to pray, to pray for the increase of the kingdom here in this world and for the hastening of the kingdom of glory. This is grace. This is the time of grace. And grace, as the old Puritans would say, grace is glory begun. But glory is the fulfillment of grace. That's the end of the story. That's when Christ comes in glory and establishes, plants his scepter in this world. And every enemy will be made his footstool in the course of time. And so, may the kingdom of Satan be destroyed. May the kingdom of grace be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it. And may the kingdom of glory be hastened. No wonder Jesus said later on in this same chapter, but seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be yours as well. The third petition is, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
The Catechism says that God by His grace would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to His will in all things as the angels do in heaven. There's perfect obedience now in heaven. Fallen angels were kicked out. But the angels in heaven that surround the throne are sinless and obey God. They are His messengers. Jesus, the incarnate Word, did this perfectly for His Father's glory and for our good. Go to the Garden of Gethsemane and learn how Jesus wrestled in prayer and came to the point of saying, not my will, but thine be done. He is worthy to instruct us, to teach us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so where do we learn the will of God? How can we understand God's will? Well, the Bible, you know, Jesus is the incarnate word of God. The Bible is the written word of God. And the written word contains the revelation of the will of God. There we learn the will of God. For example, Paul's writing to the Thessalonians. And I'm so thankful Paul was so practical. Paul taught us how to live in this world and in a Greek culture that was very promiscuous, that was inundated with homosexuality and lesbianism, all of that. There's nothing new under the sun. But Paul could say to them as he dealt with that whole area of marriage relationships and how we conduct our bodies and, and seek to live chaste and pure in a pornographic world, Paul said, this is the will of God, your sanctification. So we ask the question, well, what's the will of God in this particular scenario in my life? When I, you come to this particular juncture, what are you going to do? What addition are you going to make? Uh, what about this? Is this person the right uh, spouse, the husband or wife, whatnot? Well, we know that the will of God, unquestionably, undeniably, unchangeably, the will of God is for your sanctification. You see, so you can go from, that's a general statement, Graham, then we work out the particulars day by day in the particular decisions we have to make. But that teaches us how the Word of God reveals the will of God. Got it? Simple concept, right? So we need to stay in His Word. We need to stay in His Word. Paul, when Paul prayed for the church, for example, he'd pray to the Colossians. You can read this in chapter 1. That you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And he goes on from there about being strengthened by the power of God to be patient and long-suffering and never lose your thankfulness because you remember your heavenly inheritance in the Father. All right, That's how Paul prayed for the church. That's how this church needs to be prayed for. And Christendom needs to be prayed for that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, the second half of the Lord's Prayer is in regards to our personal needs. Our personal needs. And John, you really didn't need to worry about your timer because they don't work in this place. They, they customarily go off too soon. So disregard the, the, the timers that go off, all right? <laughs> You're in vacation Bible school and kids are never in a hurry to go home from vacation Bible school. 
our personal needs. Give us this day what? Our daily bread. All right, how many of you at home, there's nothing in any cupboard, there's nothing in any pantry, you got up this morning, you had no food whatsoever. Of whom is that true today? I don't believe any of you on the back row. <laughs> now, we may need to go do some shopping, but this is the point. Now, in the third world in places, I've, been, I've rubbed shoulders with a number of people. When they go to bed at night, they don't know what, if there's going to be any food tomorrow. Oh, that would put a whole different slant on this petition, wouldn't it? When you're literally praying for food the next day. We don't live at that basic level, do we? And the, prob the issue is, maybe I should say the problem is, our cupboards are all full, our pantries are full, the grocery stores are all, almost as many or more as the churches. All right, so what relevance does this have to your life? Give us this day our daily bread. Well, bread stands for more than just food, but it does stand for food in these basic necessities of food, clothing, and shelter. That's why Jesus teaches later on this chapter. Don't worry about what you'll eat, what you'll drink, clothes you'll put on, all those things. The nations all do. They always have and they always will. And so, like the manna in the wilderness... The Lord is teaching us a daily dependence upon our Father and to remember that we need to ask Him, give us this day our daily bread. So we're asking for more than just the material provision of that. We're asking for God's blessing. And, and I really think it's, it's an echo of what Solomon prayed in Proverbs chapter 30. Listen to this wise man's prayer. Actually, this wasn't one of the Proverbs of Solomon, but to another. But listen to this prayer. Proverbs 30, verses 7 and 9. Two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. That was number one. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. The way John Adams spoke of his father, Deacon John, leads to me to believe that was a man who, in whose heart falsehood and, and lies were not present. Isn't that a good petition? Two things before I die, Lord, that's one. Remove falsehood and lies from me. Here's the second petition. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me. Boy, what a wise prayer. You know, people who buy lottery tickets and want to win $2 million are not praying this prayer, give me neither poverty nor riches. You hear what I'm saying? We're conditioned to believe that riches of lottery proportions is synonymous with security and spiritual well-being, and you'd be better off to win. You know, most people who've won those things through the years, what do they say years later? Wish we had never done it. Amen. Never done it. The strain it, the strain it puts. Very, very few people can handle significant wealth and maintain a spiritual intimacy with the Lord. This is a wise man's prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food allotted, the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Boy, this, is, this has helped co uh, curb covetousness in my heart, in life, 
And it really works. <laughs> it really works. Give us this day our daily bread. Don't you find as you've grown older, your lifestyle tends more towards simplicity? Yeah. We talk about downsizing. I don't need so much stuff. If we could raise our four kids again, I think I'd keep them an inch from starvation just to teach them to be more... <laughs> Teach him to be more spiritual. Learn what it means to pray, give us this day. We got these things planned out 30, 40 years. You know, a lot, most of the world doesn't live that way. We got to see, I love our America. I love a culture. I don't want to give up these comforts and things. But you have to see at the same time, they can be bondage. And as Larry Burkett and others have written so well, as our material prosperity has gone up in this country, our spirituality has gone directly in the opposite direction and proportion. And so, let me just encourage you today, always pray before you eat. Whether you're in a restaurant, whether you're at home, always pray before you eat. When you wake up, Pray early in the morning when you wake up. Talk to the Lord. Pastor Charlie was here some weeks ago, remember? He taught us some things, how simple prayer can be. Before you go to sleep, you know, this is really a prayer for contentment. Give us this day our daily bread. If you're confident your Father will prepare that, as Paul said, food and clothing, we can be content. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Some of you learned that prayer using the word trespasses. You grew up Roman Catholic and learned that version. Some of the other English, older English versions have that. But technically, here in Matthew, it is debts. That's the Greek word in the original, debts. Something that we owe an other by virtue of, of sin, especially to God. Sins of commission, sins of omission. I was struck this morning how in, in reading one of the old Puritan prayers entitled Sins, this is how those who, in days past, those who spent so much time meditating on the Word would pray, Merciful Lord, pardon all my sins of this day, week, year, all the sins of my life, sins of early, middle, and advanced years of omission and commission, of morose, peevish, and angry tempers, of lip, lip, life, and walk, of hard-heartedness, unbelief, presumption, pride, of unfaithfulness to the souls of men, of want of bold decision in the cause of Christ, of deficiency and outspoken zeal for His glory, of bringing dishonor upon thy great name, of deception, injustice, untruthfulness in my dealings with others, of impurity in thought, word, and deed, of covetousness, which is idolatry, of substance unduly hoarded, improvidently squandered, not consecrated to the glory of thee, the great giver. Sins in private and in the family, in study and recreation, in the busy haunts of men, in the study of thy word and in the neglect of it, in prayer irreverently offered and coldly withheld, in time misspent, in yielding to Satan's wiles, in opening my heart to his temptations, 
in being unwatchful when I know him nigh, in quenching the Holy Spirit, sins against light and knowledge, against conscience and the restraints of thy spirit, against the law of eternal love. Pardon all my sins, known and unknown, felt and unfelt, confessed and not confessed, remembered or forgotten. Good Lord, hear and hearing, forgive. That's a little more than just saying, Father, forgive my sins and go on. It's a little more searching, isn't it? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's when we have a greater sense through the Holy Spirit's convicting power of our sins and need for and the reality of the mercy of God that forgives us. That changes and begins to transform our disposition to others. Because I guarantee everybody in this room this morning here has been sinned against. And some of us have really had to fight roots of bitterness against those maybe within the family backstabbing or gossip or breach of a covenant many many things it could be a terrible struggle can it let's confess that but I want to encourage you today boy Oswald Chambers devotional today and my utmost for his highest boy he really talked about how judge not that you be not judged and he talked about how prone we are to do the Holy Spirit's work of convicting and he just says no no. Who here today needs to clean the slate with someone? Then put your Nike ball cap on and just do it. Just do it. Speak the words. Lord, I can see that speck in my neighbor's eye, but how easily I overlook the log in my own. Forgive me, Lord. And forgive those who have sinned against me. Be merciful to them. Just when those thoughts come up, and sometimes that, that, that can just play again and again for weeks and months and years, can't it? But whenever it does, just remember what Jesus said. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Do good in return. See the opposite of what the flesh would do. Just do the opposite and bless them and forgive in Jesus' name. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's the last petition, or the evil one. I think what Jesus is saying, stay humble and remember the power of temptations. There is no temptation overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Along with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What a great promise that is. Paul wrote the Corinthians. But remember, temptations are strong. And the world and the flesh and the devil want to do all they can to make us stumble. Recently we studied how Peter said to, to watch and be very careful. Be on your guard against the devil who like a roaring lion prowls about seeking whom he may devour. Remember that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That will encourage you to put your armor on daily in this spiritual battle. The conclusion, sing the doxology. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's the doxology. 
Paul, so many times, if you'll observe in his writings, like the book of Romans, he comes to the end of chapter 11, where he's talked about the gospel for eight chapters. He's talked about the God's plan for Jew and Gentile for three chapters. And he just has to lay his pen down after he's written. For from him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. That's singing the doxology. When your heart's just overwhelmed by the greatness and the goodness and the love of our Heavenly Father. That's my prayer for you. And as you sing the doxology, dear people, would you please learn to say the Amen. Amen is, let it be so. <laughs> Deposit that in my bank account. That's a very loose paraphrase. That may be how the message reads. Put it in my bank account. <laughs> let it be firm. Let it be established. It testifies that you have prayed and agree with the prayer and are sealing it and making it your own. You sort of expect the person who's praying to mean what he prays or she prays, right? And so, in learning to worship biblically, congregations need to learn to say, Amen, at the conclusion of the prayer. Not, not the guy next to you who's been sleeping through the prayer, and he wakes up and says, Amen, glad that it's over. But it's a congregational response. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Okay, a few of you got that. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to pray and we're going to sing. Let's go home. Heavenly Father, teach us. We thank you that you gave your only begotten Son, and Jesus could say, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Lord Jesus, thank you. Full of grace and truth, we bless you and praise you for perfectly fulfilling the Father's will and word and fulfilling the prophetic scriptures to give your life as a ransom for many. We glory in your resurrection, your ascension, your sitting down at the right hand of the Father and coming again in glory on the last day. And until then, O oh Lord, we want to be a people of prayer. For you taught us to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and in everything to give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Teach us to pray, Lord.